You're listening to the Washington Hospitality Industry Podcast, your primary source of information related to the hospitality industry in Washington State. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Cybersecurity, Three Tools to Protect Your Business. Today, we're going to hear from Eva Novick from Foster Garvey and Lindsay Wiegand from Parker Smith and Feek. But we, before we get to them, though, we have a couple of housekeeping items. Yes, we are recording this webinar, and it will be available on our YouTube channel and on the Washington Hospitality Industry Podcast channel, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll also include the slideshow, so if you want to see that, it's, it'll be there. If you have any questions, go ahead and type them into the Q&A section on your screen and we can answer them online. And also a big thank you to our sponsor, My Hospitality Insurance. If you would like a free quote today, visit myhospitalityinsurance.com. And now to kick things off, here is our insurance programs manager here at the Washington Hospitality Association, Logan Dozier. Thank you, Lisa. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Logan Dozier, uh, and I manage our My Hospitality Insurance program here at the Washington Hospitality Association. My Hospitality Insurance is founded on the principle of bringing tangible ROIs to our industry that result in wins. That means saving every dollar we can while keeping or improving your insurance coverage. We do this by leveraging our buying power and working with the insurance carriers to tell your story. Our program covers all your insurance needs from general liability to property to liquor to auto and many, many more. If you have any questions or want to chat and visit, uh, visit myhospitalityinsurance.com. Now I want to introduce one of our program partners. Lindsay is a seasoned professional in the hospitality industry and is a true advocate for our members. Thank you, Lindsay, for all you do for our hospitality community. With that said, I'll let you take it away. Thank you for the kind introduction, Logan. I'm excited to be here today. My name is Lindsay Wiegand. I'm an insurance broker at Parker Smith & Feek, and I partner with the Washington Hospitality Association. We're reviewing insurance programs of our members and placing uh, insurance, as Logan discussed, from property general liability down to cyber liability and employment practices liability. I'm excited today because I have Eva Novick with us today, a cybersecurity specialist who's gonna be walking through this webinar with us. So Eva, with that, I'm gonna kick it to you for your introduction. Okay, so I'm an attorney at Foster Garvey. I work with companies to help them plan for disastrous data security incidents. So they will be prepared to save time and money when an event occurs. I previously worked for the Oregon Department of Justice for many years and saw how simple preparation can avoid major pain and financial loss. So we're hoping to walk through some of these steps with you today so that, that way you can learn. Excellent. So today we're chatting about cyber and you may be asking, okay, why cyber? So a few years ago, you would have called the Parker Smith and Feek office and asked, how many open cyber liability claims or incidents are you working on right now? We would say nine, maybe 15, but over the last few years, that number has grown drastically. And we can be working on 30 to 50 open cyber liability claims or incidents at one time. And I have a great example to share of something that happened with the, uh, about two months ago with the CFO 
um, that we work with at Parker Smith and King. He received a text message that looked like it came from his national bank. He clicked on the link and answered a few personal questions. And within the next 24 hours, um, about $1.4 million had been taken from their business bank account. And so this, I think, is a great example of just how cyber claims and incidents are evolving um, and how they are really agnostic to any industry and why we need to really be focusing in on the hospitality, uh, hospitality industry as they are now becoming a larger target as well. So our first, first item that we're going to do is we are going to walk you through the different types of data breaches um, and cyber incidents that can occur. So Logan, if you could move it forward a couple of slides, we're going to have Eva start with security incidents and data breaches. Okay, so first let's talk about the difference between security incidents and data breaches. So a security incident is any compromise to the confidentiality, integrity, or availability of information technology, asset systems, or data. A data breach is a subset of security incidents. So a breach is a security incident that involves unauthorized access to personally identifiable information or personal information. So an incident can be an employee receiving a phishing email and opening a file that contains malware, or it could be an advanced persistent threat or APT attack. It also includes things like a laptop being stolen from an employee's car, an employee accessing files unrelated to job functions or a ransomware attack. So anything that potentially compromises the information technology of a business is a security incident. Now, part of a business's incident response plan, which we'll talk about later, should be to determine if an incident is a breach. All 50 states in Washington, D.C. have data breach notification laws, and those laws define what is considered a breach under state law, and also when and how notice needs to be given to consumers. So in Washington, personal information includes social security number, driver license or passport number, financial account number or credit or debit card number, date of birth, e-signature, health insurance information, medical information, biometric data, and username and password for online accounts. Under Washington law, notice needs to be given to consumers no later than 30 days after the breach was discovered and can be given by mail, email, or substitute notice. Thank you, Eva. We're going to move along now to point of sale breaches, which is one that I get a lot of questions on. A question that I get most frequently is, you know, who's at fault? Is it the business or is it the point of sale vendor? Um, and some recent data shows that the average cost for a hospitality point of sale breach is $1.7 million and is the second most common type of breach after ransomware. So, Eva, can you tell us about the different ways a point of sale breach can occur and then also some of the fines that can be associated with this type of breach? Yeah, so there are really two primary ways that a point of sale breach can occur. So the first is with physical breaches of payment card readers, such as through a card skimmer, but those aren't as common after the chip card readers have now been required. The other way is that a lot of times smaller businesses will use their point of sale system for more than just the collection of payment card information. So when you have the sales accounting and customer service functions, 
all through the um, point of sale system and they're not technologically separated or segregated from the payment card reader, a successful phishing scam or other intrusion can infect the payment card readers. Now the payment card brands like MasterCard and Visa have certain requirements called the Payment Card Industry Data Security Standards or PCI DSS. And PCI DSS sets out security standards that businesses must adopt in order to process credit or debit cards. And these are things like using a firewall and encryption. If the card brands detect a breach or fraudulent charges, they can issue fines. They can also make you reimburse them for issuing replacement cards and pay for a forensic investigation to determine which upgrades are necessary to get into PCI DSS compliance. Now, in addition to putting your ability to process payment cards at risk, there can also be regulatory implications for non-compliance. So some of the state data breach settlements relating to point of sale breaches of payment cards. The first one was in May 2017, and that was a multi-state settlement with Target that related to a 2013 breach where Target paid $18.5 million. Some more recent ones in July 2022, there was a multi-state settlement with Wawa, which has convenience stores and gas stations on the East Coast. And that was related to a 2019 breach where hackers gained access to Wawa's network and deployed malware on the payment processing servers at the stores. Other ones um, that related to payment cards and online accounts were Sabre, the travel reservation system. That was a 2020 settlement and Zotop, which has the Sheen and Romwe brands. And that was a 2022 settlement. Now the settlement amounts in all of these different data breach settlements vary based on how many cards were impacted and also how many states participated in the settlements. What's good to know for Washington businesses is that in Washington, there's a safe harbor where a company that is compliant with PCI DSS is not liable for data breaches. And then Eva, I have a follow-up question for you. So to answer the question that I get most commonly, who is liable? Is it going to be the business or is it going to be the point of sale vendor when one of these security breaches occur? Yeah. So the business is always going to be the primary entity that is responsible. And there are ways of possibly shifting liability based on contracts, but it's really going to be the business that is liable. Thanks, Eva. Okay. So next security cyber incident topic we're going to discuss is social engineering. So social engineering accounted for 24% of total breaches in 2022. An example of a large-scale hospitality breach, um, excuse me, a large-scale social, social engineering hospitality breach would be Marriott, and it's their second largest data breach, and it was actually the third social engineering data breach that they experienced. So for this example, a cyber criminal was able to gain access um, to one individual's computer, which then gave them access to 400 customers' personal information. So Eva, can you please explain to our audience a little bit about what social engineering is and how this would be a significant threat to hospitality clients of all sizes? Yeah, so let's go through some of these different terms. Phishing often happens through email. 
So a scammer will try to trick the recipient of the email into giving away valuable information, such as an account password. And the email will likely look like it's coming from an account provider like Microsoft or Amazon or maybe a customer. Some phishing emails also contain an attachment. And if you open the attachment, you will be downloading malware, which will infect your computer and then likely spread to other devices in the network. As with any good crime, phishing is no longer limited to email. And so different terms are being used for different types of phishing. So smishing is phishing via text message or SMS. Vishing with a V is phishing via phone call, voicemail, or VoIP. And then spear phishing is the next level of phishing. So this is not just sending massive amounts of spam and hoping that someone will click on a link. Spear phishing is much more organized and the email will look like it's coming from a colleague such as your IT department or HR department. So with spear phishing, the scammer will have done research and the scammer has already likely successfully fished your colleague. Now that the scammer has good intel, it can leverage that to seem more believable and get additional information from you. Whaling is like spear phishing on steroids. So whaling targets the big fish at an organization such as a CEO or CFO. And a successful whaling provides a scammer the keys to the castle. So with social engineering, how much, um, when we see these sort of incidents happen, how much does human error play a role and how can we prepare employees? Yeah, so that's a great question because human error is really the way that social engineering works. So being able to spot these types of scams is crucial to being able to protect your business. The best way to identify a phishing email is by looking at a sender's domain name. So that's the part that comes after the and symbol. And then we have another tip here that's shown in the URL example on this slide. Before clicking on a link, you can hover over it to see where the URL will actually take you. Thank you for that helpful information, Eva. Okay, so our next type of security incident or cyber breach that we're gonna chat about is ransomware. And I feel like this is one that we see a lot in the media is the ransomware attacks. So a recent example that um, I read about uh, that just happened January of 2023 was a quick service franchise had to shut down 300 locations for a few days due to a ransomware attack, making it so they could no longer operate. Um, the total dollar amount of their loss has not been reported yet, but it's already been estimated to be upwards of millions in just the loss of revenue. So Eva, can you explain to our listeners today a little bit about what a ransomware attack is? Yeah, so ransomware is malicious software that locks down your systems until you pay a ransom. And with any large-scale crime syndicate, the criminals change their behavior based on what victims are trying to do to protect themselves from the criminal attack. So the best practice is to always have an offline backup of data, but there have been recent changes in ransomware. So ransomware has been specifically targeting companies with cyber insurance, so insurance companies are starting to change their coverage or the cost of coverage. Attackers have also been stealing targeted information and demanding payment in return for not disclosing the information to governmental authorities, competitors, or the public. Uh, Verizon, which provides really great reports, 
um, said recently that 10% of breaches now involve ransomware and the threat actors are stealing data and publishing it instead of just encrypting it because it's a new revenue source. I do wanna provide some good news here. So the FBI has been asking companies for many years to not pay a ransom. And in reviewing ransomware incidents reported to the FBI Internet Criminal Complaint Center or IC3, uh, Verizon found that 90% of reported ransomware incidents did not result in a financial loss. For the 10% that did pay a ransom, the amount varied widely. So the median amount lost was about 11,000 um, and the range of losses in 95% of the cases fell between $70 and $1.2 million. Um, another vendor that helps companies respond to ransomware attacks reported that only 37% of ransomware victims paid their attackers in the fourth quarter of 2022, and that was down from 85% of victims who paid in the first quarter of 2019. So ransomware is definitely changing. And then Logan, can you go to the next slide? Because we have some great resources that Eva has shared with us too. Yeah, so these are just good resources that you can research after on how to minimize risk and also who to call for help. The FBI partners with industry to address cybersecurity risks and can help respond to major incidents. Excellent. Okay. So next on the agenda is going to be business email compromise. And so based on some of the um, incidents that we've chatted about already, it looks like a lot of things can also lead us to a business email compromise. Um, how can a business email compromise? compromise affect the daily operations of a business or hotel and restaurant? Sure, so business email compromise is a cyber crime in which an attacker targets a business to defraud the company or one of the company's customers. So in a business email compromise scam, the attacker poses as someone the recipient of an email should trust. Business email compromise oftentimes starts with a successful phishing attempt. So once a scammer gets into your system, it can start sending emails undetected from your email account. The business email compromise scam often relies on both social engineering and intrusion and usually cannot be detected by the same techniques used to identify a phishing scam. So here's an example of how business email compromise can affect a restaurant. So let's say a restaurant wants to purchase some delivery vehicles. It negotiates the purchase with a car dealer and the dealer sends the restaurant wire instructions to complete the payment. However, unknown to the restaurant, it wasn't really the dealer that sent the wire instructions. A scammer that successfully fished the car dealer was tracking the status of negotiations and sent an email from the car dealership's actual email account. Or the scammer might have waited until the dealership sent wire instructions and then sent a follow-up email from the dealer's actual email account saying, Oops, I sent the wrong instructions. Here are the correct instructions. <clears throat> of course, the scammer is not sending the correct instructions. So when the buyer makes the payment, it gets wired directly to the scammer. <coughs> Excuse me. Liability will depend on who's in the best position to avoid the loss. And that question can depend on the prior relationship between the parties and also what type of care the hacked party exercised in its information security procedures. I want to say that business email compromise is not chump change. So the FBI reported it received about 24,000 complaints about business email compromise attacks in 2019 through the latest statistics I could find. Um, and that resulted in more than $1.7 billion in losses. 
So even though business email compromise only amounted to about 5% of the complaints received by the FBI in 2019 about cybercrime in that year, it equaled about half of the total amount of losses reported. Yeah, that definitely is a chunk change. Thank you, Eva. Um, so now that we've gone through different types of security incidents, cyber breaches, and items for you know ever, all of our listeners to be on the lookout for, let's chat about how we can get our listeners prepared. So Eva, preparation. Can you walk us through some things that um, everyone listening today can start implementing? Absolutely. So security incidents and data breaches will happen. It's a matter of when, not if. So there are some steps that you can take to help minimize the risk of being subject to an attack, minimize the risk during an attack, and recover from an attack. So data mapping is typically the first step in privacy and security compliance because you need to know what you have in order to know what to do next. So after figuring out what you have, ask yourself first, how much information do I really need to be collecting? And then how much information can I collect in a different way to minimize risk? Because if you don't collect it, it can't be taken. If you do need it, Make sure that you have reasonable security, and what is reasonable depends on how sensitive the information is and current technology. So what was reasonable five years ago is a very different standard than what is reasonable today. IT departments and vendors can assist with data mapping and security, and most importantly, these are not once and done assignments, so collection and use needs to be regularly revisited based on changing business demands and enterprises. Cybersecurity needs to be regularly revisited based on changing technology and feasibility. So for example, multi-factor authentication, particularly for remote access, wasn't on many people's radars years ago, and now you can't get cyber insurance without it. And if you don't have it, you should. Part of protecting information is making sure you appropriately handle it after you no longer need it. So this is also an important step in data minimization. Washington law requires entities to take all reasonable steps to destroy or arrange for the destruction of personal financial and health information and personal identification numbers issued by government entities when disposing of the records. And then we also have some good news, bad news on vendors. So there are a lot of vendors that can assist with all aspects of privacy compliance but you need to make sure that you select good vendors for all of your business needs because as we talked about, you can be held legally responsible for the actions or inactions of your vendors, particularly if you did not adequately vet the vendors. So for example, in the target breach I mentioned, attackers were able to gain access to Target's customers' credit card information through an HVAC vendor. The HVAC vendor did not have reasonable security and Target did not appropriately limit what personal information its vendors had access to. And it also happened because Target's cardholder data environment was not appropriately segregated. Wow, so it sounds like number one thing to take away is that there are people who have a lot more data than they realize. And it's also important to recognize that it's not just having customer data, but also having your own employees data. So thank you for this, Eva. So. Uh, the next step we're going to chat about and how to protect and prepare is 
minimizing your risk. So Eva, can you walk us through how to just minimize overall exposure? Yeah, so these are different recommendations that IT departments can help with. Um, these are kind of some very basic steps uh, that can be taken. We talked about multi-factor authentication already a little bit. Uh, patch management is the process to fix security vulnerabilities and bugs in software and apps. And so this is just making sure that your um, cyber health is kind of up to date and accurate. Perfect, thank you. So next item that we have up is going to be recovery. So if one of our participants suspects or knows that there is a breach, what are the immediate actions that they need to take? Yeah, so follow your plan. And of course, the first thing is you need to have a plan and then follow the plan. Uh, both of these types of plans will only work if they're regularly reviewed and updated and most importantly, tested. So if, if employees don't know that they exist and don't understand how to implement them, they're not worth the paper they're written on. So a business should have an incident response plan that it follows in order to prepare, detect, contain, eradicate, recover, and analyze a security incident. An incident response plan is like a roadmap that employees can follow. It should also include contact information for anyone who might need to be contacted to help deal with an incident, both internally and externally. And make sure to include phone numbers as well as email addresses because you may not want to alert an intruder that you know there's an incident if email is compromised. A business continuity plan helps maintain critical business functions so it can continue its operations while dealing with a security incident or other disruptions such as a global pandemic or natural disaster. Natural disaster. A business continuity plan needs to take into account various potential disruptions to a business and then figure out how to minimize risks and shift operating procedures. So a good business continuity plan has different contingencies and can, for example, both set out how to take operations offline and alternatively have workers operate only remotely. Uh, it's really about having a plan in place to mitigate financial loss and reduce chaos. Perfect, thank you, Eva. So now we are going to move on to our next slide, which is going to be the third part of preparation or transferring risk, which is insurance coverage. So as Eva mentioned earlier, there are different types of coverage and also underwriters can limit um, some of the coverage provided for different incidents that we talked about today. And something that we see is there are, you can get cyber coverage in two different forms on your insurance. Some of it will be built in to your property or general liability package, and it'll be a little bit, uh, maybe smaller limits and more incidental exposure versus a full cyber liability policy, which is truly put together to um, cover the majority of the type of incidents and exposures that are happening out in the cyber world. Um, although we do like to say, yes, insurance will protect you, the insurance carriers and underwriters still want to make sure that you are definitely following best practices. Um, because as Eva mentioned earlier, it's not if a cyber incident occurs, it's when, and they want to make sure that you are protecting yourselves and are going to have um, the safety protocols in place to minimize the risk. So something that 
you almost can't get a cyber policy without is going to be multi-factor authentication. So when you go in to log into your remote desktop or email, a token is sent to your cell phone that you enter in to verify that it's you. Um, another item that underwriters are wanting to see is called the 321 method. So that's going to be where you have your information saved in multiple places. Maybe it's on your computer, in the cloud, and then also a paper version. As we touched on earlier, employee training is huge, especially with the phishing and social engineering um, type scams that we see. As the first example I chatted about, just the text message that gave someone full access to a bank account. Um, patch management, so making sure that your uh, systems are being updated with the proper security software, and then also endpoint detection and response. So yes, insurance is a great way to protect yourself, but you still also have to be prepared for a cyber incident. And Lindsay, I just want to make one point about uh, multi-factor authentication. So it can be by multiple different methods. So it can be by app or text or a hardware token. And each method has pros and cons based on kind of balancing how easy it is for employees to use it and then how secure it is. So text is actually the least secure, but it may be the easiest for employees to use. Oh, thank you, Eva. Um, and then Logan, can we take it to the next slide? Okay, so now that you have heard us chat about cyber, how prepared do you feel like you are? You know, we'd love to hear from you. But today, the main takeaways are mitigate risk, you know, be prepared and try to minimize the amount of data that you have, have a recovery plan, and then also talk to your insurance provider about the benefits of some risk transfer and having an insurance policy that will respond in one of these incidents. Okay, Logan, next slide. Okay, and then also here's our contact information. Um, I would love to hear from you. So if you have any questions about your cyber policy or about different protocols that you've put in place, we will be sharing um, our contact information. So feel free to reach out. And then we are now going to open it up to Q&A. If any of our listeners have any specific questions for either of us. No, I have one. Okay. Um, how uh, how how is AI kind of shifting the landscape of cybersecurity? I know that there's a lot of different. I mean, you can use faces and text and all that other fun stuff that encompasses AI. How is that changing the cybersecurity landscape? So AI is really changing everything, cybersecurity and otherwise. Um, AI is definitely being used as a tool in many different ways. Um, and people need to think about both how it can be used as a tool to help them, as well as how it's being used by criminal enterprises as ways to kind of foster some of these different types of attacks. I anything else? Unless um, we have any more questions, Lisa? Yeah, so far we don't have any questions. Um, I would love to thank you to both for this amazing webinar. I hope everybody takes these lessons to heart. Uh, it's really scary what people can do with technology these days sometimes, and it changes so quickly. 
So thank you both for this information. Um, for anybody listening or watching online, we will have this up on our website and our YouTube channel and our podcast channel as well, if you would like to listen to this later, as well as the slideshow. So if you need some of those links that were included in that, they will be available to you. And thanks again to My Hospitality Insurance for being a sponsor today. And thank you for watching the show. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to the Washington Hospitality Industry Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, wahospitality.org, where you can learn more about the restaurant and lodging industries and the Washington Hospitality Association. Be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or iHeartRadio so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Thank you so much for that effort. Until next time.